up, but we wanted to start the show today with something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was revealed right here on this program that July 20th would be the day that road tests for ICBC, road tests to get that driver's license would be starting up again. Well, today is the day. So to get a bit of a check-in on how things are going and how busy it is, Steve Wallace is joining us. He's the owner of Wallace Driving School. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, good to have you, Jill. Thanks. Uh, we, thanks for joining us. You talked with us on the day that it was announced. Uh, you talked about how busy you had been as far as getting people in. You were concerned that people that were just about to get their test and had it canceled or postponed wouldn't get back in. How are things looking today? Well, the people that had their tests booked for the last two weeks of March, they all got test times that we were dealing with, all of our customers. So we have 24 test times this week. Uh, one person went in at 9.30 this morning, and they were successful, so one down and 23 to go. Um, there is a bit of a problem in that the next group will be permitted to book if, if their tests were canceled in April. They'll be permitted to book as of the 30th of July, uh, midnight, I believe. And then after that, the people in May that were booked will get to book as of um, August the 7th. And then there'll be another group on August the 14th, and then everyone will be able to book as of the 21st of August going forward. Uh, The problem will be that there are people who had their test put back now four months, but they were in the graduated licensing course, which guaranteed them to get their license six months early. They've already lost four or more months of that time. So I'm not sure what mitigation or what alteration the minister is going to have to do to accommodate them because they paid over $1,000 for the course under the pretense they were getting their full license. The N would last only 18 months instead of two years. So we're still looking for word on that. But right now, 24 tests booked with our driving school. We're relatively happy, and we'll see how many pass. If you fail and you're not ready, you better be ready. If you fail, you're probably looking at a test sometime in October. Right. It's going to be. And uh, the minister had said that it would be a long wait if you failed in the first run. Are you hearing people then that that are concerned or upset that they did pay the extra money to get that guaranteed booking that are now now that really hasn't been addressed? Um, They're really only concentrating on getting a test and getting through this process. Our problem will be we have several students who got scholarships to Eastern Canada or to Calgary or to places like Winnipeg, and a lot of them are athletes, but others others have academic scholarships. So we're trying to make sure that they get into that uh, driver testing area prior to them leaving maybe April or I should say August 24th or sometime in that area. Uh, So the crunch is on to make sure that some of the people that have significant duress get in for a road test. And that's on us to make sure that we we work with the authorities to, to ensure that that happens. And that would be stressful if you're leaving the province. Do you have any way of, say, you're going to university in Ontario and you're off, at, like you said, the end of August. If you haven't taken the road test in BC, is it transferable in any way that you could start the process and do it in Ontario? No, no. You could probably... Well, you could probably try to get an Ontario license, 
But you got the same situation gone, going all over the country, and Ontario is way worse off than <laughs> yeah. BC. I mean, Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix and the people that were involved there, I mean, we're one of the least affected places in North America, and particularly Vancouver Island and other areas of the province like the north are really relatively unscathed by this whole pandemic. So as such, I mean, if you think you're going to somehow pull off some miracle and get a road test in in, uh, in, in Ontario, well, I wish you luck, but there isn't a lot of possibility. Yeah, you would think going in and then being at the back of the line, that wouldn't there wouldn't be a whole lot of luck there at all. Uh, one other question, because the minister, when announcing that today was the day they were going to restart the testing, he also talked about the fact they were going to be hiring more people, trying to get more staff in place to help expedite the tests. Uh, have you seen that happen? Yeah, they, they've done a pretty good job of training and getting some people up and running to do the tests. But the minister's got a bit of a problem there because now, because of COVID, they only do seven tests a day instead of nine. So the people that he's got to hire, if you say, oh, I'm going to hire another X number of examiners, which is a good thing to do, and they've had a lot of time to train them and go through that process, the fact is the reduced number of tests each day as seven tests as opposed to nine makes it, I would think, almost exponentially more difficult for the minister to satisfy the demand. Right. And and there was some talk about allowing instructors to do this, wasn't there? Well, there are a number of us in BC who have done road tests before, a number of people that own driving schools. In the 80s, uh, late 80s, there was a program where driving schools were given certain certification and five of us were allowed to do that. But I really don't have a whole lot of appetite to do a union member's job. And I certainly don't have an appetite for them to be teaching driving either. Uh, so as far as the process goes, if asked, then there's a relative expertise out there that, that could be used to do this. And I would think that if a student has gone through, you know, 32 hours of theory sessions and driving and another 40 hours with parents and they've gone through that program called the graduated licensing course of which only 50 out of roughly 700 driving schools are permitted to teach they may want to relax testing requirements for those students and those students only and i think that may help clear the backlog All right. Well, great news to hear that one test is down of the 24, and that was a pass. (laughs) Hopefully that uh, sets the bar, and that's uh, what we're going to see uh, moving forward. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Always good to talk with you. Hey, good to talk with you. You got a very good glimpse of my stressful life for the next week. (laughs) Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, the Canada Committee 100 Society, an innovative research group, has released some survey results today. It's a survey of Chinese Canadians and taking a look at the perspectives during COVID-19. So we thought it would be interesting to take a look at some of the findings of this survey. Greg Lyle joins me now on the line, president of Innovative Research Group. Greg, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, so looking at some of the findings, I guess, before we get to that, can you kind of walk us through uh, what was the, the survey? What questions were people asked and who took part in this survey? Uh, sure. So we did um, two parallel surveys. We did a, a national general population survey of uh, just over 2,000 people. And then we did an oversample of uh, Chinese Canadians with the Chinese Canadians they had the chance to answer not just in English and French as we do in the general study, but also 
uh, using simplified Chinese or traditional Chinese because it was an online survey, so it was all uh, in writing. Um, and actually, I think this is the first survey to give uh, Chinese and Canadians a chance to respond in Chinese. Um, and we asked questions uh, about what they think about uh, some of the countries we're partners with, and we asked them uh, about their experience with uh, COVID-19. And let's talk about the experience with COVID-19. What kind of responses did you get? Well, it's it's a two-level story. On the one hand, when we look at economic impact, so have you or someone in your immediate household been laid off? Have you, do you have a company that has had to shut down? Those sort of questions. Uh, Chinese Canadians and the general population are having a very similar experience with almost half of uh, both groups having a direct economic impact. But when we ask people how they feel about those impacts, how they're experiencing them, then we see a different story. And when we look at those sort of feelings, we see that uh, when we ask people, for instance, how worried are you about being able to pay your rent, uh, the average uh, Canadian, 36% uh, who are renters, say they're somewhat worried, at least somewhat worried, uh, whereas half of the Chinese Canadians say that they're at least somewhat worried. When we asked a similar question in terms of being able to pay your mortgage if you had one, um, 36% of the general public was at least somewhat worried about paying their mortgage. 45% of Chinese Canadians were worried about it. Um, it also takes a, a look at uh, bias in the community. And we heard from Vancouver Police just a few days ago about the increase in the number of hate crimes. A lot of those crimes, unfortunately, have been uh, aimed at people who may look uh, like they are from China or have, uh, have Chinese uh, or are descendants uh, of people who are Chinese. Did, it, did, you, did you get a sense from people uh, about how they've been treated during this pandemic? Um, sure. So in terms of their treatment in the media, um, about half of Chinese Canadians feel that they've been treated unfairly. Um, and when we ask uh, Chinese Canadians whether they're experiencing uh, some form of discrimination um, in their everyday life, about 37 percent say that they're experiencing some uh, type of discrimination. And that compares to 19 percent in the broader population. And uh, 30% say that they're experiencing discrimination because of their race or color, uh, 29% because of their ethnicity or culture. And did you ask or did, do you know the number, if it's 37% and 30% now, was there a comparison made to, to how you feel or how people felt that they were being treated outside of the pandemic? Um, yeah, although we don't have the same detail about uh, the Chinese. We didn't do the big Chinese ever sample in the past. Um, actually, it, it's an interesting and surprising story to me in a positive way and that we've been tracking attitudes towards visible minorities, uh, different cultural and religious groups for a, the better part of a decade now. And in actual fact, um, when you ask people what they think about different groups, those sorts of questions we're actually seeing uh, fewer people um, exhibit any sort of overt signs of racism and fewer people saying that they're experiencing uh, discrimination. That There's still a lot of people experiencing discrimination, and clearly the police reports show that the people that continue to hold racist actions are a lot more likely to act on them now than they were before 
um, COVID-19. So I don't want to in any way be seen to be minimizing the problem. But there is uh, there has been a generally improving trend in the way Canadians feel about minority groups. It's interesting findings. I wonder too, and I don't know that this survey went into this, but the difference or the blurring of lines when we're talking, if we're talking about the the government of China and how people perceive the, the communist government of China, when we're not talking about Chinese people or Chinese Canadians, that, and that, that, that they are two very different things. Well, and we do see that, right? So when we ask people how they feel about uh, Chinese Canadians, uh, we see generally pretty positive attitudes. But when we ask them, um, and we had a, a very specific question, uh, thinking about Canada and its relations with other countries, to what degree do you feel we can trust each of the following countries to treat Canada fairly if we have a dispute with them? Um, only 13% of Canadians think that we can trust China on average. And even among the Chinese community, only 39% believe that we can trust the government of China to treat Canadians fairly. Were you surprised at all? Just to give you a comparison, like if you ask about the United Kingdom, um, the average response is 81% think we can trust them uh, to treat us fairly. Hmm, Interesting. And were you surprised at all by those results? Well, just the dramatic differences, right? Because we didn't, we asked about India and we asked about Mexico. Um, we asked basically about, you know, the superpowers in Asia, our partners in uh, the uh, U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement, the Mexico Free Trade Agreement, and the countries we have historic ties with. And it's just so dramatic. I mean, you're talking about uh, 77% of the population saying that, that China is not very trustworthy or not trustworthy at all. And the only country even close to that is how we feel about the United States these days, where it's down at 56%. Well, very interesting findings. We'll leave it there for today. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, we've been talking about this on the program for a few weeks, and today is the day that restaurants and pubs are allowed in this province to purchase beer, wine, spirits at wholesale cost instead of liquor store retail prices. That comes into effect today. When this was first announced, we heard from the Attorney General, David Eby, saying that because COVID-19 has been devastating for hospitality and tourism business owners, employees and families throughout the province, that the hope is this will help the 8,500 restaurants and pubs that employ almost 200,000 British Columbians survive the pandemic and be ready to thrive post-COVID. So let's bring in Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me on, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? Good, thanks. So will this help restaurants and pubs thrive and survive? Mm, yeah, so this is really, like, this is dramatic. Um, I mean, this industry is probably for, I don't know, I mean, since since alcohol became legal in British Columbia, there was always this question about why can't restaurants buy alcohol at wholesale prices similar to everything else they purchase? So that's been a long, long time, and there's been a lot of governments that have passed through and said, yeah, it should happen, it should happen. But it took, it took two things. It took... Um, the uh, boldness of an Attorney General E.B. to take this on and say, I'm going to make this happen, and also took, unfortunately, a pandemic to do it. So what it means to a restaurant is about a savings approximately of 20%. You know, put that in context. Um, 
an average restaurant in BC would do a million dollars. That's a small restaurant, but they could do up as much as 12 or $15 million. But if you look at a restaurant that's doing uh, 30% of its liquor sales uh, on a million dollars and they save 20%, that's $60,000. That's how significant this is. And you can do that calculation, you know, the, the, the bigger the restaurant gets. So it is, to your question, Jill, um, this is the difference between restaurants having a future and restaurants closing. It is, it, it, you know, obviously they're selling liquor, but it's a substantial uh, change. And it's probably one of the biggest ones that government's put in place for rest, for the hospitality industry. In the announcement, though, when it was made coming into effect today, though, they did refer to it as a temporary authorization that stays in effect until March 31st, 2021. Uh, how do you see that playing out if that stands, that they're going to make this significant change and then draw it back? I don't think so. I, you know, I think it'd be really difficult to provide that benefit and then to gear up and then, you know, cost your business around that benefit. And then suddenly go, no, nope, we won't do it anymore because I don't know what's going to happen next spring. But I think what's going to happen, they may alter it a little bit so that there's not, I mean, this is the full benefit. We, we are buying at the same price that, that um, private liquor stores buy, the wholesale price. And so they may, they may inch it up a little bit. They might say, you know what, can we make it 15% versus five? The industry is going to go great. Thank you very much. I don't think it's going to go away uh, in March of 2021. And I don't think, similarly, the ability to order liquor when you um, go pick up or have food delivered to your home or your office or wherever, um, that that privilege I don't think will go away either. But they, they're smart. They want, to, they want to curb it. They want to make sure that, you know, that the, the forecasts on volume and the cost to government by doing these things you know, in the, in the whole context of uh, liquor sales in the province, it's not a lot of money. But I think they just want to make sure they can they have a chance to pause and look back and make sure that it's it's making a lot of sense. So um, I think we'll I think we'll continue on after May or, or uh, spring of 2021. Uh, you, you talk about how this is a game changer when it comes to the owners and people in the industry. Will consumers notice any difference? You know what? The honest answer is probably not. Um, as someone said to me today. Uh, what it probably does is um, avoids uh, price increases. I mean, the industry's had to put their prices up in the last little while. I don't think we've really felt it, but they have had to do that. I think this avoids putting liquor prices up when you get into the fall. So it, it's it's sort of holding back from saying, you know what, I have a benefit right now. I don't have to raise my prices any further. So in, a, in an indirect way, Jill, there will be value there for the consumer. Um, you'll see some people will take it and uh, and run it around happy hour. Happy hour is is a real tough one because there's not a lot of money happy hour. I think you'll see a little bit of adjustment, but pretty much right now the industry, you know, two-thirds of the industry is still in the red, not making any money. 50% of the industry is still worried about being able to pay their bills. So I think they're going to be really selective about just sort of passing on savings when they're trying to fight for, you know, their their long-term survival. And I think people understand that, too. They don't expect suddenly, like you said, as restaurants and pubs and, stu- and such are just getting back, they're still not at capacity. Now probably isn't the time that consumers are looking for the bargains and the great deals and understand why they're not being offered. Yeah, you know what we're seeing is that uh, the consumers want a safe experience. They want to feel confidence and in the, in the restaurants are investing into that. And I think you know, as as consumers and guests of restaurants see that the restaurant's going to the extra mile, 
to be able to provide a, a venue they can go and be safe in. Uh, that's the biggest concern. I think uh, they they would not appreciate, listen, you know, Jill's Restaurant's a discount place now because that means that Jill's probably not putting in the, the protocols and the disciplines that we have in place in British Columbia right now, and they've done a great job at it. But we still have, as you and I have discussed, Jill, there's still a, a swath of the audience that still needs to be uh, convinced to go back to restaurants, but maybe about 30% of the market. And so I think, you know, the investment back into their operations to continue to invest in, you know, in plexiglass. I mean, some restaurants were like five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in plexiglass to do the things they did. So there's a lot of investment that these restaurants will want to recoup over time. And I don't know if you have numbers on this or even anecdotally. Have the changes as far as restaurants being able to do off sales and, and the relaxation of some of those rules, do you know if those have been helpful or in a way that has made a difference? Yeah, they have. Some people say, you know, it's, it's backed off because people can go into restaurants. And, and other people say um, there was um, a restaurant in Kelowna on Friday called me and said, this is a game changer for me. Like, make sure this doesn't go away because people are really enjoying this. They're getting their deliveries. They're going for picnics. They can get their cold beer and wine. So it has made a difference. And, and it's going to continue to be really important as you look. Well, we should do this sometime in maybe a month or so, Jill. Talk about the future of restaurants. What All the things that we've learned around the world and what restaurants will look like in two or three years. One of the things, though, that's early indication is that pickup pick up and delivery will be a major part of the industry. It was before, but it even more in, increasingly now. And I think when you look at professional sports, some restaurants will say, eh, people aren't going to come and sit around the bars, but they will go home and they will order and they'll get their skip the dishes or whatever they're doing. So, um, and the ability to, you know, Dr. Henry, I remember early, she said, it's just good to stay home. And so why do you want to be driving liquor stores and stuff? So it's, it's a nice, convenient way of doing it. And the restaurants are providing some great value. I mean, some of the, some of the wines will be, you know, five or $10 over cost. So there's some great values to be had as well, too. So it, it is making a difference for sure. You take patios, delivery of food, um, now uh, wholesale pricing on liquor and the dining experience. And so there's quite a few levers right now for the, well, and now we've got some great sun for the uh, the operator to, to make a difference here. Exactly. It is such a, a different way, a different feel for the city. And even myself, I was walking home the other day and I had to buy wine for, to go with dinner and I was on my way to the liquor store, but then I happened to pass by a restaurant that had the window doing off sales. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just buy it right here. Bought the wine, although the guy who sold it to me said, do you need a cup to go with that? So I'm not, I'm not sure what vibe I was giving off when I did that. I was like, no, no, I'm going to take it home. That's okay. But it's great to see well, restaurants being able to do this. That's really funny. You want a cup, I think, to go cup. Yeah, no, no. You're not no. supposed to be doing that. Yeah, try to avoid that one. But I guess, I think maybe what you probably have some people... Uh, hopefully responsibly. I'm sure they are going to the park and having a glass of wine at the picnics. That's probably what the guy had in mind. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's been it, it's been good, and and that's why we have to be a little careful. The mechanics of industry, where we don't want to stop and get into the space of the private liquor stores, where they're going to say, "Hey, in a second, now we're now competing with restaurants on off sales." Mm-hmm. So we have to manage that. But um, no, there's some great offerings. I mean. Um, Joey, for example, I mean, you can go to Joey, you can get, because uh, I was involved with this winery way back when it started, you can buy Burringall wines, which you can't find anywhere. But if you order your food, you can order wines from the Okanagan in particular that you can't find anywhere else with some great value. So there's a couple of things that it's doing, too. It's really emphasizing local and a lot of restaurants are 
really emphasizing local. So it's that part of it as well, too, is very attractive. All right, Ian, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, as always, for being available. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. Well, according to the Fraser Valley Conservancy, well, they have been seeing an increase in American bullfrogs. And if you have seen these, you likely can tell that they are different than frogs that are native to this part of the world. So the Fraser Valley Conservancy would like to get the word out and get residents uh, helping them locate where these frogs are because they can cause some serious damage in BC watersheds. Let's bring in Alicia Switzer, registered professional biologist and amphibian specialist with the Fraser Valley Conservancy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, how big of a problem is the uh, the number of American bullfrogs? Well, American bullfrogs are quite widespread across the Fraser Valley, but there are some pockets that remain that they haven't quite gotten into yet. Where we do have bullfrogs, you'll see a reduction in our native amphibians. So that's our red-legged frogs, our Pacific tree frogs, our western toads. And when it comes to our wetlands in the Fraser Valley, they're already quite impacted. So having yet another pressure on them just adds to the problem. And what happens, or what does, what happens when an American bullfrog gets into a, an area where it's not a native species? Mm -hmm. Well, the main problem with American bullfrogs is that they are voracious predators. So you'll see these frogs get quite a bit bigger than our native frogs, and they eat anything that fits in their mouths. So if it moves and they see it, they'll try to eat it. Frogs, little birds, mammals, turtles, you name it, they'll try to eat it. Hmm. How did they get here? They were brought here originally for frog leg farming, about 50 or 60 years ago, they escaped from those farms or from backyard ponds, and now they're spreading across the valley through people continuing to move them, not knowing that they're invasive, and bringing them from pond to pond, either as tadpoles or little frogs, and spreading the problem around. Hmm. So what would you like people to do then? If they, Well, actually, first off, how do you know? Is it that much bigger or it looks different? Or how would somebody know if what they're looking at is an American bullfrog? Yeah, well, they're not always big. They don't start out big. So um, when they're young, they're about the same size as our native frogs. But as they get older, they can really get quite massive, the size of a dinner plate. When you're trying to identify them, you're looking for one of the main differences, the size of the eardrum. It's a disc next to their eye, and it's quite a bit bigger than their eye. We don't have that on our native species here. Also, they have this smooth back. They don't have bumps like a western toad or ridges down their back like a red-legged frog. So there are some distinct features. We have really simple ID guides on our website that people can look at to help them figure this out. And if somebody sees one and they're able to identify it as an American bullfrog, what should they do? We're looking for information about where our native frogs are as well as where these invasives are so we can prioritize areas to protect in the Fraser Valley. We have a frog finders program running to find out where these areas are, you can go to our website, fraservalleyconservancy.ca slash frog dash finders or Google Fraser Valley Frog Finders. And you fill out this really simple form that asks for a photo, some details about what you saw. And it really helps us to prioritize the work we're doing here in the Fraser Valley. 
And if they were left as they are and they continued uh, to be uh, this invasive species and continue to prey on, like you said, anything that they happen to see, uh, what would happen? Yeah, well, this is a problem with a lot of the invasive species that we have around the Fraser Valley, not just amphibians like the bullfrog, but also blackberry bushes or Himalayan balsam or knotweed. What we see is a continuing decline in the quality of the ecosystems we have around here, and that adds a lot of pressure to our native species, our species at risk. It can cause them to become endangered species or really just disappear altogether. So what we're trying to do is protect the spaces where these species haven't come in and try to enhance the habitat, bring back these special areas for our species at risk to be to help them in the face of these invasives. And is there a specific part, uh, the Fraser Valley is a pretty big place, is there a specific part where there have been more sightings of these bullfrogs or where people maybe should watch out for them? Uh, We certainly have a lot more sightings in Langley and West than we do East, but one of the main problems with trying to figure this out is there isn't a lot of information about where these bullfrogs are located or indeed where a lot of our species at risk are located. Hence the need for the Frog Finders program and for people to tell us what they're seeing out there on the landscape. All right. And you mentioned taking a picture. So I would imagine that is the best thing. If somebody can get a a photo and send it to you, then you do know exactly what you're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people confuse our Western toad with the American bullfrog because the Western toad is also quite large. So we recommend that you take a photo, send it to us. We're always happy to answer your questions. That way you know for sure what it is you're dealing with and you don't make any mistakes. All right. And you know, I would imagine that means you're asking people too not to take things into their own hands. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We don't advocate for bullfrog control willy-nilly. It can actually cause some problems in the balance of the bullfrog ecosystem. Strangely enough, if you take out all the big bullfrogs, they're not eating the small bullfrogs, which means the next generation of bullfrogs is even bigger. So in areas where bullfrogs are already established, taking out the big adults can, strangely enough, do more harm. So we're not asking people to go out and kill these bullfrogs themselves, but rather let's find out how to identify frogs, get a nice database of what we've got going on in the valley, and then we can take it from there. All right. Well, it's very uh, good advice. And in case people have been seeing uh, these creatures and wondering what they should do, we'll leave it there for today. Alicia Switzer, thank you so much uh, for bringing us uh, up to speed on this. Thanks, Jill. It's been a pleasure.